Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the world of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the world of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Z.W. Buckley. Z.W. is a musician, producer, and composer based in Seattle, writing in a broad variety of genres and styles for a ton of different projects. His work includes writing a pop soundtrack for Barbie, You Can Be a Fashion Designer VR, teaching music production at Point Blank Music School, and running the game audio co-op Plant-Based Audio. In this episode, ZW and I talk about how to join and become a part of the game dev community quickly, how to find your first projects, how to learn and practice the skill of music production, getting over the fear of jumping into becoming a full-time artist, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with ZW Buckley. So first thing I want to ask you about is how you, ZW, oozed your way into the game industry, first of all, because something that I noticed being here in Seattle, and you're in Seattle as well, was that there was a pre-ZW time and then a post-ZW time. One day you just appeared and everybody knew who you were. And you were just a part of the community. And I think that's the dream for a lot of composers, sound designers, those sorts of people who need to, you know, big air quotes, network and all that. But how did you do it? Because you just existed all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So oozed my way in. That's such a great descriptor of it. <laughs> it's vaguely threatening, but kind of in like an Ivan Ooze from the first Power Rangers movie sort of threatening. <laughs> it's not really threatening, you know, but it's like children's <laughs> threatening. That's weird. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> how did I ooze? Yeah. So I will also say that that's really uh, heartwarming and sort of a nice little like Wow, okay, I did my job well to say that it felt like a pre and a post time because like I moved to Seattle in January of 2020, literally just before the pandemic and spent that like first year and a half in this new, exciting, beautiful, gorgeous city locked in like my old apartment. And so <laughs> the fact that it felt like I was just present is great. I think that for me, I am such an extrovert akash like if there is a scale of introvert to extrovert i am literally like kool-aid manning <laughs> bursting through the end of the extrovert spectrum so i think that that was in my favor like i love talking to people hanging around people being around people and i think that a lot of it started a few years earlier when I finally decided to go into games, stop being afraid and do the thing that I had known I wanted to do since I was 13. Mm. I was then like trying to prep myself because I was living in the middle of central Illinois in a small college town, which it was, it's not like a major game dev hub. So I was on Twitter at that point and started following a lot of game audio people just liking, vaguely commenting sort of stuff. And, you know, some people like I made friends with somewhat quickly. And then once I got out here, I just decided like, I am going to be present everywhere that mm -hmm. I possibly can. 
because I realized pretty quickly that working as a composer in games, the trick isn't like actually being able to write music (laughs) because like that's just like a default right the Mm -hmm. trick is being the person that somebody thinks of when they need music Mm -hmm. and so i just started being a friendly face everywhere and anybody who seemed like remotely interested in talking with to me i would just try to get to know them and be friends because i think i was so desperate and like hungry to get started that as soon as I realized that like building a career in game audio is very much like farming, honestly, (laughs) like there's a planting season and harvest is a ways away. So it's like, I need to, I'm really resisting the urge to like mix metaphors and just be like, I needed to go out there and sow my wild oats because like that doesn't make sense at all. Right. But like professionally, yeah, I kind of had to. So I just went out there and met people with the understanding that it would be a year to five years before I would maybe work with any of them. And my first like really consistent recurring contract was very much like that. I've worked on five or six projects with Pika, which is a company here that adapts children's books into VR games. Literally my first week in Seattle, I met their lead programmer, Chris, and we hit it off about VR because my master's degree is, my thesis was on music design for virtual reality experiences. So we were chatting about that. And then a year and a half later, they needed someone to handle audio, and I was top of Chris's mind. And this might be apocryphal. I've never thought to confirm it. But at the time, I was under the assumption that when the president and the CEO of the company signed a contract with me, neither of them had heard a single decibel of anything that I ever made. They just loved and trusted Chris, that they were like, we'll go with this guy. And then like, as a result, now like several years later, it's like, I get to say that I worked on a fucking Barbie project. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, if we think about that as a a signpost to meeting Chris, we're talking like a a four-year period there. So I think that really your description of it is like, okay, suddenly like this gigantic man, (laughs) like it's impossible to miss him. He suddenly appeared, like he snuck (laughs) up on everybody. Like that really is what happened. (laughs) I don't know if you remember how we met in person because we knew each other vaguely from the internet, but I was literally sitting at a table eating Indian food outdoors and you were there. You're like, are you Akash? And that was it. Oh, I know. I have a picture of it somewhere. If you're doing like your trademark thumbs up smile. It's really funny. I was aware of you very early on too. And I'm going to put this to record on the podcast because like, I feel like at this stage, like I almost should give you money because like when (laughs) I was learning the ropes of game audio, a lot of like my peers or at least people who were coming up in the industry, like opening up the door for the first time, I would ask them questions and everybody would like immediately say something much smarter than most of them were. They're all very smart people. But when I got to the root of it, it was because they were repeating things that they learned from you when they took your course. So like by, (laughs) by like proxy, I definitely have taken every single one of your course offerings. (laughs) I swear that wasn't planned. And so, yeah. So when I saw you sitting at that restaurant, because at that point we had had so many mutuals. Yeah. I was meeting somebody else for the first time. I was like, wait, so many people have been trying to get me to meet this man for so many months. Like, it has to happen right now. (laughs) (laughs) There's something to that because 
I feel like location does matter for those sorts of random bits of, I guess I'll call it luck, right? Like you can do this from anywhere for sure, like absolutely no doubt. But what would you say the importance of location was, especially because you're kind of farther away from a hub and you decided to move here to Seattle? Yeah. So honestly, I think that distance is one factor amongst many, right? But what I would say is that proximity makes certain things easier especially since we've learned since the pandemic, the internet is the ultimate, like we are, we're close by. Right. But the internet's also full of a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of people uh, on the internet. Right. (laughs) And you know, it's like, I see people who think that there are like 20 million composers and only 10 games being made every year for those 20 million composers. And the reason they think that is because when somebody puts an open call for music on Twitter, there's 500 comments, right? And that isn't an accurate assessment of what's happening. There is one person with a game who made the mistake of mentioning they needed music on Twitter, but then there's 500 people who, which it is super easy to just say, yeah, I can do this, right? And that's like the lowest level of entry. It's not that those people aren't skilled. Many of them are very capable. I have seen AAA composers be reply guys Mm -hmm. to Twitter Mm -hmm. comments, you know? And those are scary moments when you're like, (laughs) well, what's happening? Okay. But instead, it's so much easier to engage. Therefore, conversely, it's so much harder (laughs) to actually like meaningfully connect with people. Whereas when you are in the same place, the same city, even though Seattle is a relatively sizable city, there aren't that many other people here who are also working in games in the sense that like it is easy to connect with someone and have them be aware of you in a way that is much harder or at least it just requires a different skill set online right so i think for me being this kind of six foot three crazy loud and i'm like (laughs) always down to party (laughs) that makes it really easy for people to be like oh yeah that guy (laughs) it makes it easy for people to remember me in those contexts and that's one thing that i've learned about being present and being in a space but also just connecting with people directly like i used to do a ton of social media a lot of people learned about me in games because there was like a nine month sprint where I was like making short form video like crazy. I had a video game composer stereotypes (laughs) reel that like went mildly viral. I mean, honestly, in the world of game audio, it went pretty viral. And a lot of people like learned who I was through that. But I realized at some point, because making those videos are a lot of effort, that I was seeing the same sort of social progression, we'll say, in my career, just by like reaching out to people I had vaguely connected with on Twitter or Instagram and be like, hey, do you want to like get a virtual cup of coffee sometime and hop on Zoom or something? And like that has established and cemented so many amazing relationships and friendships for me that like if somebody listening to this does not want to do the social media game, great. You don't have to, but like you still have to be somebody who people are aware to. And there are different routes to do it if you're not in like a major game audio hub. Like I could have done everything that I've done so far, probably from my little crazy cheap condo back in Illinois. But like, I love it here and I don't want to leave. 
<laughs> you mentioned two really interesting things earlier where you are in the extrovert scale. You are the Kool-Aid man. You know, you'll just pop through the extrovert side. I'm the opposite. I'm the introvert side as hard as you can go hiding in a corner. But you also mentioned, even though it's like easier for you to talk to people and stuff, you also mentioned this fear of jumping into this whole composer world, something that you knew you wanted to do when you were 13, but maybe there's some hesitation there. So I want to hear about where that hesitation was. Oh, man. So that hesitation dives back a bit and dives deep. So I used to be like choir boy extreme, like really growing up working class in a rural town. Instruments were expensive, but my loud ass was free, right? So like I could just sing like that was easy, right? And so I really latched on to that. And by high school, it became pretty much like my whole personality to a T. We're talking two-time president of the concert choir here, not to like <laughs> brag or anything, but just so we understand where the stakes are at in the story so far, right? And so I had planned on like studying vocal performance when I was in high school, and that was what I wanted to do in college. And my senior year, I had a music teacher that I really, really trusted pull me aside and essentially say, hey, if you do this, you're going to fail. Don't do it. And I was 18 and impressionable and already felt behind because I, I didn't really play an instrument at that point. I had started like vaguely learning guitar. And so that really kind of, for lack of a better word, it shattered me mm -hmm. at the time. And I settled on deciding, okay, I know that I want to do this. I am dealing with some grade A shit here. But like, I'm not confident right now. I don't have to be confident, but I'm going to be stubborn. So I'm not going to give up. And so the stubbornness carried me forward for a long time, but it meant that I was kind of finding different routes because that fear that had enveloped me of failing meant that I was looking a bunch of other ways. I mean, I also was really interested, you know, we're talking early 2010s in the Midwest, like five years after some record label discovered fucking Fallout Boy playing <laughs> in like a Knights of Columbus hall up in Arlington Heights. Like that was our culture. And like the fact that some band playing another shitty like VFW hall can actually like have a career. And all of a sudden it was like bands popped up overnight. And I also was in the shitty garage band phase, but I was like, I can do this. I can do this really well. And so I started college on like a full ride for acting. And I realized like that I did not want to be an actor and I was confused and still reeling with that. So I dropped down and was like, I'm going to make it in my band, you know, let alone like we were nowhere near a major city. And I lived like that for a while. And then I eventually found my way to recording through whatever, being broken, having a band, but thinking the world needed to hear our music. So I had to record it myself because I chose stubbornness. I wasn't confident at that stage, but I chose stubbornness. And which then kind of led me into electronic music and music production. And then I found my way to an amazing program at Illinois State University, their creative technologies program, which is amazing. And that was like, oh, okay, I'm learning these skills 
maybe the smallest iota of confidence started to appear there. I was like, okay, so maybe there's more than just stubbornness that's carrying me forward now at this point and really kind of started resurrecting that old dream of like wanting to write music for video games. And then after I finished my undergrad, they offered me a slot in their grad program, expenses paid. And I was like, well, one, I'd be dumb to say no to that, period. Two, that's two more years I can bury my head in the sand instead of actually trying at this thing that terrifies me because I'm afraid that I'm going to fail because I still have that voice in the back of my head all these years later. And then, yeah, eventually we kind of found our way out to Seattle. And, you know, at that point I was like 26, 27, and I knew what I needed to do, like overpowered that fear that I was still feeling. And then we get back to then, boom, January 2020, moving to Seattle and just being like, I have got to go as hard as I can at this and, and do my best to make this happen. There's so much good there that we need to dive into. But the thing I do want to talk about is you mentioned something a little bit earlier as well, is the variety of stuff that you can do as a composer, audio person is, is insane. A lot of people will think, oh, the only way that I can possibly succeed if I score the next James Bond movie, and that's it. There's no other way to make money as a composer. But I want to hear it from you because I know you've done a wide swath of things that it's totally possible to do well as a composer doing lots of different things. Yeah, here's the thing. I realized as soon as I got out to Seattle, the biggest, most scary thing is that it was real at that point and that it was no longer the abstract fantasy that like existed in my head because when you imagine your ideal career and you imagine being a professional artist right what you never imagine is like taxes bank accounts like <laughs> client relationship management software like pricing invoices like all of this stuff that is not the thing that you fantasize about. And I found myself sort of, once I was faced with that, I realized like, oh, okay, I need to diversify. <laughs> like, If I'm going <laughs> to actually make a living at this, because the idea of just going from like working full time, doing whatever, to then just like, ooh, finger snapped, I'm so cool. And now I'm earning all my money from this other totally separate thing. That's amazing. There are lucky people who have done that, right? But for the vast majority of people, myself included, that wasn't actionable. You can't plan on like a lucky break, right? Like that's such a huge thing. You have to be prepared for it, but like you can't financially strategically plan for that. But what I realized is something huge, like the totality of my career shifting all at once to that, I couldn't plan on that. But little nuggets here and there, I could. And parallel to that, right, my whole career was built up during the pandemic. And one of the things that I immediately noticed, in contrast to what I was realizing about having multiple pillars to my career, is that all of my friends and everybody I know who put all of their eggs in the live music basket were all of a sudden bottomed out. They couldn't work. They had amazing skills that like they had to figure out how to translate to other things. And it was like a table that had one gorgeous, beautiful center leg hourglass shape. And it's like, you cut that leg out, the table falls, right? Whereas if the table was four legs, maybe even three legs, depending on the arrangement, if you cut one leg out, 
the table's going to be wobbly, but it's going to stay standing long enough for you to put a new leg on, right? And so those things made me realize, like, okay, I need to diversify, like, what I'm doing. I need to do a lot of things. And so early on, I was doing sound design and I was doing music. And then the teaching was one lucky break. I was convinced that I would be a god-awful teacher. I was so, so convinced about that. That was like the one area where I had such extreme imposter syndrome. And my spouse, Emma, one day was just like, this is my words, not hers, but the sentiment are the same. She was like, can you please put your head out of your ass? You have a literal master's degree in this. If you can't teach this, then you didn't learn anything for two years. And so I spent like a week planning like a big launch and social media stuff and and made cute little adorable graphics and was like, okay, it's like October. If I get one student by the end of the year, this is going to be a success. And then I put my first graphic up and did a Twitter blast and was like, hey, please retweet. And very randomly, Lena Rain retweeted my call to students to all like 55,000 plus of her Twitter followers. At least that's what it was at the time. I'm sure it's like quadruple that now. And I had like 10 students literally overnight, like literally overnight. So that was like one of the few breaks that I had. (laughs) And so I started teaching alongside composing and then alongside sound design. And I began to really realize that like sound design is not my bag, at least game sound design in the way that like you do it really well. It's amazing. And you're clearly like passionate about it. Like I was realizing the more that I was doing it, that it was like grating teeth for me. Come to find out, like (laughs) I love sound design in service of music, right? Like I'm an electronic musician, like half of what I'm doing is sound design, right? But it was just like, my brain thinks of it only in like that wireframe of like that pipeline. And so I started to lean into teaching a lot more as a way to kind of let some sound design drift off. And so because of that, I started teaching for Point Blank Music School, which is like, I think like it's been voted the number one school by DJ Magazine for like a gajillion years. I've been teaching in their online school and I teach a class called Creative Audio in Ableton, which is super cool and it's amazing. Ableton is my bag. And then I also have my private students. I'm composing for games as well and like when I started doing all of these different things and treating my career as one holistic practice is when I finally felt the first sense of financial anxiety receding away and like I felt like I had control like there was less anxiety because composing especially at the stage in my career that I'm at it's like I don't have a million people knocking down my doors where like I have 200 minutes of music that I have to write every single year. Like that'd be cool if I was there. I'm not there yet. I've got great work that I really love, but it's not as like indies either call you at the very end of the game and they need 60 minutes or like they call you once a quarter for two minutes of music for five (laughs) consecutive years. And there's very rarely in between. Right. So I think just like having all of these different creative, professional, income-earning pillars that are in sort of my overall practice as a creative has been the key to stability for me. Mm, Gotcha. Now, you teach creative audio, music production, those sorts of things. And 
you are one of the few people I see actively teaching this skill because music production one is a very vague and broad term. And we'll dive into that in a second. But also the thing I probably see most, and I don't know if you agree with people's, you know, like mid-tier people up and coming with the reels and music that they're making is that the production tends to not be up to snuff. That tends to be a, a common weak link. So I want to hear from you, one, if you agree or disagree, maybe you totally disagree, but I want to hear from you what music production is, <laughs> how you define it, and how you even get better at it, how you teach it, and how you help people get their production to a higher level. Yeah. Okay. There's so much to that question. And with my tendency to tangent, like we might be here for an hour just on that question. So yes, part of the complex that I developed out of that whole episode in high school was I used to think that like, because I went a different route, I didn't go to composition school. I didn't get like the classical orchestral background and training and all that sort of stuff that like, I was never going to catch up. I was always going to be behind. And I actually was pleasantly surprised when I got into games and realized like, oh no, wait, like my production skills are actually an edge because I agree with you that like for a lot of people and a lot of composers up and coming, they can write an amazing, beautiful tune, harmonize it in whatever, a million different ways, but like the production isn't there. And it's sort of like production alone doesn't make a track, but production alone will always keep doors shut. Because here's the thing, you as an individual sitting in your office, much of the same way that you and I are now, or, or sitting at your laptop or whatever, it's like, you have to deliver a commercially viable recording that can hold up to anything else in games. And when you are like a, a solo composer just starting out, it's like, you have to be the one to do that. Like the vast majority of composers working these days, honestly, even the ones at like big AAA studios now, they're mixing, mastering, producing all of it themselves. Production matters. So then like, as far as defining music production, I truly think of music production as the act of taking a piece of music from initial idea all the way to commercial recording and distributor recording. And in my mind, composition is a step along the production pipeline, as opposed to like, they're always viewed as these like two circles that never interact when in fact, like production and composition are just one single circle. And so that's a lot of what I teach my private students as well as my students at Point Blank. And something that I also really like realized as well. And part of it is just that our vocabulary around composition for a lot of people, I, I'm trying not to speak too broadly because it's so nuanced, right? But generally, the idea of what composition is isn't as expansive as it could be or as it should be, right? Like, if I write a melody, sure, the instrument choices that I make matter, rhythmic, harmonic choices, those all super matter. The sonic choices matter as well. There is musical significance to filters. There is musical significance to reverbs, delays. Or like thinking about like something that I do a ton is I'll resample my own work and then create subsequent sections of a song from a previous uh, section. And in my mind, right, that's thematic development. That's a light motif. 
it's in a different form, right? Instead of thinking in terms of like just notes, I'm thinking in terms of like literal actual audio and how do I edit, warp, manipulate, develop that, right? Like it, it takes production and it, I guess, elevates it to the level of composition, but instead creates a more fluid, dynamic and expansive vocabulary. I think a lot of people just struggle with if someone says, oh, you need to up your production deck. Okay, what do I do now? So I'm curious what they should even start to listen to or focus on or learn from too, if that is something they want to upgrade. Yeah, I think that's such a good question. I'm a huge fan of like finding the opportunities within limitations. I guess the way that I'm thinking about this is it's really hard if someone is like, they just want to do purely John Williams style, like orchestral music, right? Like that's really hard to achieve without a certain level of investment in libraries and in tools, right? Because you're so desperately trying to mimic like acoustic instruments. So like that is a challenge, right? But if you're willing to be fluid in your style and what you do and what you explore, right? Like you can get better at stuff and can find interesting ways. A lot of people's music would honestly just benefit from like real simple mixing stuff. Like if you're listening to this and you are early in your career, pause this and just go Google subtractive EQ and then like come back after a couple of hours, right? Like, like that sort of <laughs> stuff, you know, like you'd be amazed if you just take away all that unnecessary low end so that your speaker systems can literally put out what you want them to. It does a lot for you. So I think like learning the basics of mixing, I think is really helpful. I think that if you are willing to be more adventurous and exploring, like go for a, a, a hybrid style use samples or, or synthesizers or stuff like that, right? Like I'm the kind of person who I don't believe that like more knowledge hampers creativity. Even though I take a little bit of umbrage with the idea that music is a language, I do think that the metaphor of understanding how to learn music is well applied to the idea of language because it's just every time you learn something new, it's just like you've added a new word to your vocabulary. You know, like you can say whatever, I love potatoes, right? Like, boom, three words, very simple, very direct. But as you learn more words for this metaphor, right, your vocabulary expands, you can start to speak more precisely. You can start to speak more eloquently. And that doesn't diminish your creativity, right? Like me learning to say a brand new word, like, does it mean that like, oh, I'm less creative now because like <laughs> I actually know the definition of onomatopoeia, right? Like that doesn't like actually rob you of anything. And so I think that, yeah, seeking that knowledge out and seeking that curiosity and exploring some practical, tangible things like self-assess where your weak points are and like lean into it and be flexible with what you make. Awesome. Now, I've had your friend and mine, Catherine Toll, on here before, which is great. And you two and others as well have started a audio co-op called Plant-Based Audio. So I want to hear about this because it's a more unique setup. You mentioned, you know, solo composers. That seems to be the more standard way to go about it. You go out on your own, you're a freelancer. But you have a kind of group that you're working with. So I want to hear all about it. Yeah, there's so many angles behind it. I was just describing Plant-Based Audio to somebody earlier today in a meeting that it was very much a pandemic baby, <laughs> you know, like in the sense that being a freelancer can be a really lonely job. 
You embed yourself into a team, either for the long haul or at the very last minute. You get to know these people. You provide the service that's needed. And then you're off into the sunset to the next gig. And there is no sense of, you know, that sense of camaraderie can be really difficult because maybe it's a couple years before they bring you back or something like that. And then the pandemic really kind of exacerbated that because then it was like, okay, I'm in my apartment. I'm working with people here and there periodically. And there was this kind of growing desire for community and camaraderie. And this was also right around the time that there was like a lot of exposés coming out about like some of the really terrible conditions that composers and composers assistants found themselves in down in in Los Angeles working in film and television. And just thinking about like wanting to build a studio build like an organization that would allow us audio people to work together and we could just be a roving audio department on the countryside, you know, <laughs> like watch out, <laughs> there they are. You know, even though we would jump from project to project, as is the nature, we could do it together. We create a community for ourselves in that regard. And we could set it up in a way that empowers us as creatives, lets us have this organization, but also creates this infrastructure that makes sure that however big this thing builds, we can keep it as equitable as we're able to, right? Plus, it's like all of us really wanted to be able to create opportunity for others. Like it was at a stage where, you know, I was still needing more work than I had had. And so I was feeling particularly sensitive to like, man, I wish that like somebody would just take a chance on me or like that something would come up that I could help somebody and show like, hey, I know what I'm doing. I can be a value here. Another aspect of it is we have this mechanism that is this company that is the four of us that may expand more or whatever, right? Like we can create a small center of gravity, like because four capable freelancers who are well-known in the community are coming together as a company that is going to draw attention. And at some point we are going to have enough to keep all of our mouths fed and we're going to have extra. And now we have this ability to be able to bring in others. See, what, if it's consistent, maybe they join the co-op. But at the very least, we can contract extra work out to others and say, hey, client, you know us. We're great. We're awesome. We're so capable. Like, you should know this person. They're amazing. They're going to help us out on this project. It's going to meet our standards, our level. We're supervising it. But they're going to help with the day-to-day to us. And it's like we can provide first credits to people that way, second credits, or that ability to like make that positive change and build up more community is, is was just like another driving factor behind it. And plus, it's like I'm a band guy. I spent 10 years playing in bands and like plant-based audio is like the closest thing I've got to a like a band in games. You know, it's great. Like we just uh, went down to Game Sound Con all together, had a panel together, and it was like we did a little tour. It was wonderful. I love it. It's amazing. All you fancy audio directors listening to this podcast, because who working in game audio isn't, check us out. <laughs> <laughs> You're buttering me up. You're making me look good. I love it. Hey, it's what I do. Checks in the mail. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> so for you specifically, considering you mentioned... You're doing a bunch of stuff. Obviously, we talked about that earlier, the various streams of income, the various things a composer can do. There's also opera thrown in there. I want to hear everything about this. Yeah, opera is a very recent thing for me. Very recent. So I became acquainted 
I think via Instagram, with a, a composer who was living in this area at the time uh, named Spencer Eggers. And they posted on their stories one day like, hey, come see my opera at Seattle Opera. We're doing some free performances this Friday. Like, check it out. And I was like, great. Like, I'm a broke composer. I'm looking for something fun to do on a Friday night. And you said free. I will go. <laughs> and I was just so floored by what mm. I had experienced. It had been a long time since I had set foot in any sort of classical performance since high school. And I really should have expected, I think, in hindsight, to have been impacted more than I was. Because as we remember, like I was originally planning to study vocal performance to become an opera singer. Like That is what I wanted to do at the time. And so to just see these operas, all of which were like written about interesting contemporary issues, I was like, whoa, there's so much more here. And this is amazing. And then like when they were talking about it during the kind of space between the performances, they mentioned that these operas were produced through a program that they have at Seattle Opera called Creation Lab, which is essentially a tech accelerator, but for like opera composers and librettists. <laughs> and I saw that they were taking submissions for new composers and librettists. And I, as I was reading it, like I went through like an emotional kind of roller coaster really shortly because they were like four composers, 18 to 30. And I was like, fuck, I'm 30. Mm. And then after the word 30 in parentheses, it said inclusive. And I was like, nice. let's go. I can do it. Like <laughs> I've got a window. Like this was August and this past October I turned 31. So I was like, nice. I could probably win a Pulitzer prize for my <laughs> application. I told my whole story and how I was like genuinely moved to tears by these operas. Cause I realized like it was activating something that had laid dormant for 12 years. And I was like, this is literally like the one and only chance you have to accept me in this program like it's fine if you don't want me around but like i won't bother you again next year because i'll be outside <laughs> of the range so it's like if there's even like a smattering of interest like the train's about to leave the station y'all <laughs> and so a couple weeks later they called me back and i had an interview one of the interviewers was like, so can you tell us about your experience like writing for vocals? Because you, you didn't really submit vocal heavy tracks. And I was like, fuck, like I had like a heart attack in the interview and I thought, yeah. oh no, I bombed this. This is terrible. They don't think I submitted vocal songs, even though like there was singing on all three songs. And then they're like, yeah, okay, we'll let you know next week. And then like less than 24 hours later, they're like, hey, you're in. And I was like oh. screaming. Like you can ask my spouse, Emma, I was running around the house screaming. Like, cause I, I think that it was sort of this way of reclaiming that lost time for myself, almost like reteaching myself that, you know, like you have a place here if you want it. There is space for you in any musical world that you want to be in. Don't let like one person's opinion change that. Mm -hmm. So it's been an amazing process. I've gotten paired up with a librettist. I'm working with this amazing poet named Spencer Young, and we are writing an opera that is like about eco-terrorism. <laughs> Who knows, all right? The, the opera won't premiere for another six months. And we're going to really explore this idea of people being 
one like pushed to their edge that they want to take action and take direct action and also playing with this power fantasy. So it's going to be about a group of young adults who are driving and the whole opera is going to take place in the car, a 20 minute car ride. And they are on their way. They've resolved themselves to go blow up a gas station and we'll never learn if they do it. I'm not concerned whether they do it or not. I'm not going to know. The librettist is not going to know. No one's going to know. But we're going to spend that 20 minutes like really exploring that topic. And like, what does it mean to be pushed there? And one character is for it. One character is against. And another character is going to not be playing both sides, but essentially create this interweaving. And it's just, it is so fun. It's so exciting. We've been partnered up with a professional librettist and composer mentor Kelly Rourke and Laura Kaminsky and they are amazing like I feel so humbled and thankful if Laura for some reason ever listens to this she would probably be like this is a bit too much but for film people for comparison it feels like I've got like opera's John Williams as my mentor like she (laughs) is amazing and like an opera that she composed less than 10 years ago called As One has become like one of the top 10 most performed operas in America in the last decade. Like it's a huge, massive hit. And that my stupid little emails with weird little questions about funny (laughs) things that I want to do with music. And it's like, she's answering that. And so kindly it's mind blowing. So it's been such an exciting process because it's so different than games. Games are very people oriented, but like, Imagine if, like, the composer was the game designer. It's a role (laughs) shift that I am not used to. Mm -hmm. I'm not periphery. Like, I am one of the central mechanisms (laughs) that make this thing move. And, And, yeah, just to work with all these people, have a collaborator, write for live musicians... It's awesome. And it's really great also like going to game events and having something other than games to talk about. Yeah. At Game Sound Con just a couple of weeks ago, everyone's talking about their games and like everybody in the group is nodding as their eyes are slowly rolling back. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, what are you up to? I'm like, hey, I'm writing an opera. And everyone's like, oh, let's talk about that, please. Like, I don't want to hear about another Metroidvania mm-hmm. as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been wonderful. And it's opened up this door that I never thought would open again. And now it's like opera is a part of my creative practice. And I eventually, I think a professional portfolio, if I can make it work and figure out what life looks like for me in American opera today, then I'll probably do that as well. I'm very excited about it. Awesome. I love it. What a good note to start wrapping up on. But there is a question that I ask everyone who comes onto this podcast. Of course. Of course. And it is. When you were first starting out, whatever that may be, maybe when you were 13 years old, maybe you, when you were a choir boy, whatever that may be, how did you define success? And how has that changed over time? And how do you define it now? Yeah. It's the one question that I, of course, know that you were going to ask because <laughs> I am an avid listener to this podcast. It's great. And I have been thinking about this quite a bit. I mean, honestly, even from when I first started listening to this podcast, I would always ask myself that question, not thinking that anytime soon I would be interesting (laughs) enough to be on this podcast, yet here we are. Here we are. So, I mean, I think that I would be a liar if I didn't say that 
early on in my actual career getting started, success was strictly financial. Mm -hmm. That would be a lie if I said anything otherwise. You know, it was like, I want to be a professional at this and I want to earn my living at this. And how do I figure that out? And so much of my first year and a half, couple of years was like the stress and the anxiety of figuring out that like was such, such a real factor. And so it very much was like, yeah, I want to earn a living and to feel like I'm actually like contributing to my household and not like a deadbeat. <laughs> I don't want to be the fourth cat, right? Like, so that was success. And I would be lying if I would say in some ways that is not still the measure of success. I am not by any means earning the kind of money that makes me not think about money as a sure. success measure at this point. I would love to get to that point one day. But well, I'll say in the last year and a half, that answer has become more expansive. I want to work with people that I adore being around. I don't want to work with assholes ever <laughs> again. I've done that before. Nah, no thank you. I want to make something that's meaningful, mainly to myself, but I do want it to be meaningful to other people. I don't need to be famous, right? I don't want to be some huge household name. I don't want that. But I want to know before the end of my life that the music that I made meant something to other people. In the same way that I know that my teaching has meant something to other people. Because with teaching, those moments come faster and sooner. And it's an amazing feeling when you know that you have changed someone's life. You're a teacher. I'm sure you know this. And so for me, it's like, that's half of the legacy that I want for myself. It's me being able to set somebody else up to do the things that they want to do. And I do believe that effect will ripple. And so like, that's meaningful to me. And that's what I want my lasting legacy to be in some capacity, but in the other capacities, I want my music to have that same feeling and that same effect. And so that's really a big thing that I'm building on. And then I think, I guess one more is like, I always want to keep people guessing, including myself. Six months ago, if somebody was like, oh yeah, you're going to write an opera next year that's going to be premiered at the Seattle Opera, I'd be like, great, shut the fuck up. Like, that's not true. <laughs> but the opportunity presented itself. I didn't think twice about it. I just went for it. And now I'm doing something fun and rich and new and creatively stimulating. And so I want to keep doing that. I want to be like a Ryuichi Sakamoto by the time I die. If I do 50% of what that man did in his lifetime, I will be so successful to like go from Yellow Magic Orchestra to being an amazing solo musician to then an incredible film composer and then have this amazing late career as this pioneering experimental musician. Like, yes. So I, I think thinking about just runway for the rest of my life, I want that. If, if I'm lucky, I will live as long as my relatives do and people in my family live a really goddamn long time for some reason. And I hope to be meaningfully contributing to the music that I'm making and the, and the people that I'm around that whole time because I love what I do. Keep me doing that till I'm on my deathbed. And then like, Whatever, like sample me on the way out. Like I'm sure I'll make <laughs> some god-awful sound that could make a sick snare or something when I pass. So that is success to me. Gosh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was a long one. 
that's going to at least go down in the record books as like the worst answer to that question no. you received. No, being sampled as a snare from your deathbed is definitely one of the best ones. I love it. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> now, where can people find you before you wrap up completely? Yeah, you can find me at zwbeckley.com but if you are really quite interested in my ramblings that you've just listened to and you want to read those ramblings i have a newsletter called keep living with music you can find that at zwbuckley.substack.com i growing up so desperately wanted to be a fly on the wall and watch my favorite artists as their careers developed or even just other professionals as their careers developed and so I write a newsletter where I, instead of sharing like sick how to's and here's like your best serum preset and like, here's the best way to do OTT. It's three of them stacked <laughs> instead of that sort of stuff. I'm sharing the ins and outs of like what I'm doing and trying to be like genuine and candid about it. So if you're interested in that, follow me there. But otherwise you can find everything else on my website, cwbuckley.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was amazing. What a fun time. Thank you, Akash. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod sound biz pod and that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects they'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound thanks so much and i'll see you next time and if you're looking for more audio related podcasts to listen to this podcast is actually a part of the audio podcast alliance featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.